0: Remember those bits in Spider-Man 1 we said we liked last week, whereby the costumed hero is forced to choose between two falling human representations of their respective crime-fighting and civilian lives, and they choose both and succeed in saving both? And then that bit where the heroine kisses the hero without his mask and realises from the distinctive touch of his lips that he's the costume vigilante she previously had the hots for and kissed earlier, not knowing their true identity, and now wants the man beneath the mask she didn't know was there all along? Yeah, we saw Batman Forever this week. It's in that.
1: Digital Drift, episode 11, recorded Monday, 7th of April, 2014. Spider-Man 2.
2: I believe there's a hero in all of us. Gives us strength. Makes us noble. Even though sometimes we have to give up the thing we want the most.
3: Barker! Where you been?
4: Looking for you all morning? You're late. Always. You're fired.
2: Look at you, Peter.
5: Your grades have been declining. You always appear exhausted. I know I'm trying. So where have you been, pal? You don't return my calls. I've been kind of busy. Taking pictures of your friend? Spider-Man killed my father. No matter what I do...
6: Do you love me or not?
5: No matter how hard I try... I want Spider-Man dead. It's the ones I love who will always be the ones who pay.
3: I can't keep thinking about you. I'm getting married.
5: I want a life of my own. I'm Spider-Man. No more. You look different. I let things get in the way before. There was something I thought I had to do. I don't have to.
3: I like seeing you
6: tonight, Peter.
5: Now on to the main event. Tavius is going to put Oscorp on the map in a way my father never even dreamed of.
4: Crazy scientist turns himself into some kind of a monster. Four mechanical arms welded right onto his body.
2: You takes Spider-Man's pictures? Where is he?
5: It's taking me off your loyalty to Spider-Man and not your best friend. Putting Spider-Man to me. How do I find him? Peter Parker. Find Spider-Man or I'll peel the flesh off our bones. There are bigger things happening here than me and you.
1: Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture.
0: Welcome to the Digital Drift. Welcome back to the second of the Spider-Man reviews. This time it's 2004's Spider-Man 2, long regarded as the pinnacle of superhero movies, darling of both critics and box office, adding yet more legitimacy to the idea that these could be films in their own right, and absolutely beloved by fans. Ten years later, following Iron Man, The Dark Knight, and The Avengers, in our eyes, this is far from perfect. Perfect. Hope you folks like the taste of sacred cow steak.
1: Before you switch us off in a rage, fear not, we're not going to rip into this one. We saw it following the absolute trough of the Marvel movies, namely Electra. <laughs> <laughs> that was rather bad. And by comparison, this is finely crafted and fascinating. But we do have issues with a lot of the content, and that's worth discussing, lest we consider anything beyond reproach.
0: I'm going to start by saying that on balance, this is still... The best Spider-Man movie. Much of the material we take an issue with is on a personal level and it's abundantly clear from the outset that unlike a lot of superhero fare, this one is actually about something and accomplished at exploring those themes especially now that it's freed from the restraints of the origin story of the first outing and the total mess that the conclusion became. This hits the ground running with already well-established character arcs in play. Choices have been made, and the story largely concerns itself with the ongoing consequences. To start with, I don't think I mentioned this last time, but potential directors of this film series, before Sam Raimi was uh, finally settled upon, uh, included Roland Emmerich. Chris Columbus, Tim Burton, and David Fincher. All of them sound totally wrong. Emmerich has largely been proven to do mostly stupid films. Uh, Chris Columbus does mostly honey-coated family fare. Uh, Tim Burton does whatever the fuck Tim Burton wants. And if it turns out to be an all-right film, it's almost an accident. And uh, David Fincher does really Grown-up, really somber thrillers. Uh, he might have made it probably closer to maybe *The Dark Knight*. So either way, I'm actually I'm very glad that Rami ended up directing these because even if they're not necessarily to my taste, especially not now, they were the right films at the right time with the right director.
1: I think that's probably a fair assessment. <laughs>
0: Further legitimizing comic books, uh, you can uh, see artwork in this previously on Spider-Man intro painted by Alex Ross. Uh, He uh, of um, Justice, the Justice League story, and Marvel's, the Marvel story about the Marvel Universe, but told in a very, very realistic way from the point of view of just a guy at street level. He has a way of of making everything look like sort of not nineteen thirties Norman Rockwell painting, but also propaganda. But also, he works from photographs, so it it has that um, that the look of real life, just stylized and painted over, which is a nice way of summing up how the uh, Spider Man films go. Although they don't really tend to have that absolute seriousness which Alex Ross plays with.
1: Yeah, although I think that the. What really made this choice interesting is that it's setting up something that comic book fans would recognise. I mean, even if they couldn't necessarily put their finger on his name, they would have seen his artwork in spades.
0: Yeah. Uh, He was actually featured in another fairly serious comic book-related movie, but not an adaptation from around this time. Remember it?
1: Not an adaptation?
0: It was Unbreakable. Unbreakable.
1: Oh, God, of course, yeah. yeah.
0: He drew the sort of like the stony slab face of Bruce Willis. Mm. Um, comics at this time, especially with Unbreakable, needed to be said to be an art form in their own way. They were almost super defensive about this point. They were, they were sort of like, well, what about Watchmen? What have all, all of these these things that comics have achieved over the years? And because it was the dawn of the movies, they still needed to convince the public that comics weren't just... <laughs> Get them, boys. Get them, Horace Curtains! And the worst thing is, wham, pow, splat, all of that shit that came with the Adam West Batman. That's what people thought comics were, thanks to Adam West Batman, which was one group of people's take on what comics were like back then. That's why I think that that Batman did more harm than good. Because we've been having to pedal three times as fast since then, just to make people think we weren't that.
4: You are not sending me to the cooler. Freeze well. What killed the dinosaurs? The ice age. Stay cool, bird boy. Let's take some ice. Freeze
0: winter ice. Ice. Freeze winter. Winter. Freeze cold. Frosty. Thanks, Warner Brothers. Nicely averted.
1: But I think that, importantly, is one of the reasons why this was so wonderful at the time.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a cool way of contextualizing it, actually. Th- that, that was what we were pedaling away from.
3: Yes. And Tim Burton's Batman was...
0: didn't really, not entirely, get away from it. It was dark and camp and gothic and prince did the bat dance and sort of riffed on the adam west show and then it collapsed into
1: exactly the shoemaker
0: ones which were like no no this is actually really what comic books are so this, at that point it was like we've been trying to make this for growing ups but what's the point it's all just silly isn't it
1: yeah. See that—that's the thing. The the Tim Burton Batman's I think were getting away from that, but they, but were just they couldn't sustain themselves.
0: No, because Batman Returns was just a Tim Burton film. He was using the character to do what the fuck he wanted. He wasn't yes. doing a Batman story. No, it wasn't even a Batman film. It was a fucking Catwoman and Penguin film.
1: Agreed. But I do think that it it gave that sense of you can take comic book characters and do what you want with them. It. it it does sort of give you uh, a sense of comic books being diverse and not just one thing.
0: True, and that has sustained over the years. However, every so often when they do a film and they make it about something and and use the comics as a uh, a means of of fleshing out by looking at uh, uh, what uh, emotional beats have occurred over Peter's life, over his career, something like Spider-Man 2 can happen. And uh, uh, that that was most definitely uh, uh, the right move at this point because they could just have gone for a repeat of Spider Man One and it wouldn't have elaborated.
1: No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. And and given that Schumacher's Batman's had absolutely taken things backwards, um, it would have. Not necessarily harmed the genre, but it would have prevented it from moving forward if they just said, well, that was successful enough for us. We'll just try and repeat the same thing.
0: Structurally speaking, it is still not entirely dissimilar from the uh, original Spider-Man 1. But because, like I said, they hit the ground running and they're like, Peter, Peter has to juggle with all this stuff and be Spider-Man at the same time. It's kind of it's it, it ups the stakes. Mm.
1: And an origin story, if you think about it, um relieves the writers of the burden of having to come up with much else because the origin part is going to take up a sizeable chunk of their running time.
0: Before we start, let's go through the whole villain of the week script that this could have been, which was an earlier draft of the film. Doc Ock becomes infatuated with Mary Jane. His mechanical limbs use endorphins to counteract the pain of being attached to his body, which he enjoys. When he injures two muggers on a date, this horrifies Mary Jane. The result: Who would mug Dr. Octopus? And the resulting battle with Spider-Man, his tentacles are fused together, and the fusion begins to kill him. In the script, Octavius is the creator of the genetically altered spider from the first film and gives Peter... an antidote to remove his powers. This means when Octavius is dying with his tentacles, he wants to extract Spider-Man's spine to save himself. This leads to the alliance with Harry in the final film. Beforehand, Harry and the Daily Bugle put $10 million price on Spider-Man's head, causing the city's citizens to turn against him. Producer Avi Arad rejected the love triangle angle on Ock and found Harry putting a price on Spider-Man's head Unsubtle. Now, if you've ever seen Avi Arad in interviews, the guy's a producer through and through, so if he says it's unsubtle, it must really not have been subtle. I mean, this guy uh, originated in Toy Biz. Enough respect to Arad, he saved Marvel from going down the tube in the late 90s. And he ushered in the the first few movies. But then when the new Marvel movies came along with uh, Iron Man, he kind of took a back seat on that one and let Kevin Feige uh, take over on on producing duties and godfathering that series. And it's been a much smoother sale since then.
1: Yeah, I think if you if you look at the way his influence has... Um, affected things. He does seem to look at things like a merchandiser. Mm.
0: Now, I see uh, this uh, Spider-Man 2, uh, it's dated. Uh, let's, let's not mince words. Uh, it, it feels like the sort of honey-coated, you compared it uh, as being akin with a fairy tale. It feels very different to the Avengers universe now. And, right. uh, and definitely very different from Dark Knight. Mm. Uh, it, that doesn't mean it's not still relevant, but it has sort of taken its place in superhero cinema history where it's very much of its time. Uh, it, it feels very much like Superman, the original The Donna one. Both Spider-Man's 1 and 2 have that feel to them. In fact, specifically, this feels a bit like Superman 2, only Superman 2 is considerably less accomplished in either cut than Superman 1. And even Superman 1 falls apart near the end. Um, see the Superman review for that. But, uh, no, the, the whole thing about... Um, dealing with your responsibility and giving up your powers. And that's all Superman too, as well. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Although his was more of a, a very definite, now they're on, now they're
0: not yeah. choice. Uh, well, we'll talk about how and, and why that happens in, in a bit. But yeah, that, that seemed to be very much a, a case of, do you choose what to do with that as opposed to get into a machine and this will take all of that responsibility away from you. Mm. Yeah. However now I talked about uh, Sam Raimi being absolutely right for the the, the time and place this is a horror movie for kids at times and when I say for kids I mean sold to kids but not necessarily for them there are times when this is fucking terrifying this is a PG in the UK Uh, the the first one was a 12 and in fact it was the first one that really forced the BBFC to accept the 12A certificate the idea being that uh, originally it was a 12 and this seems alien to us now but Under-12s could not get in to this. First one, that is. And eventually, when they conceded that that would uh, mean that a hell of a lot of Spider-Man fans would not be able to... Like, their core demographic, their key audience, would not be able to see the film that had been made for them in the UK, they extended an A to that, which basically meant accompanied by an adult. And that was the first one, because of the threats of sexual violence from the Green Goblin and his particular viciousness. And then you watch Spider-Man 2 and there's no real threats of sexual violence although he does say I'll peel the flesh from her bones. I'm not sure why that's better. Um, And the bit with the surgery where he tears apart those doctors and they're screaming and being smashed about the place and the chainsaw comes into play. It's hilarious and like the Evil Dead but it's also like the Evil Dead. And it's for kids. And it feels really uneasy. And somehow it got a PG and I often wonder what the fuck were they smoking? I'll tell you. Marijuana. Interestingly, Paul Shotton informs me, and he's the BBFC specialist on our site, that the IMAX version of Spider-Man 2 is a 12A, because of the intensity. I think it should have been a 12A to begin with. But it was a PG. There you go. You live and learn. Now, uh, we re-encounter Peter, MJ, and Harry in this film, and they're all out of step. I'll say this to begin with before we go into their characters. Peter is a confused child, MJ is a depressed teenager, and Harry is an embittered man. And none of them seem to really match up together. That's not necessarily unnatural either, because people do tend to uh, grow in different ways, especially when they leave school and have different responsibilities. Um, Harry only really has responsibilities towards his business, and seems to have grown up the most, if you consider how mopey and, and not really taking much on board he was in the first one. He actually, when you first meet him, he's smiling, he seems to be very self-possessed. Uh, he's still very clearly angry about Spider-Man, but he's a man, for sure. A lot's happened in two years to him.
1: Part of what's changed with Harry... You're absolutely right about the idea of him being this embittered man. I mean, if you look at um, it's it's a tiny thing, but if you look at the uh, the party when they're all together, and that's I think that's really the only time in the film that they are all together. Um, it, there's uh, a lot of it is to do with um, uh, with Aunt May's house, but there is a very 60s feel um, about that setup and the way that MJ and Harry addressed is is a big part of that. Um, he is. He is clad in the trappings, if you like, of what constitutes uh, an adult in that particular environment. And it's not – he doesn't look wrong in it, um, which is – whether that's just to do with the way that James Franco grew up – whether he just, you know, came into himself a little bit more than Toby Maguire did. he When he's wearing the business suits, he doesn't look like a kid playing at being a grown-up. He mm. looks like a man.
0: He's more comfortable in the role this time.
1: Absolutely. But then when you look at how he reacts um, when he's talking to Otto about, um, you know, how they're all going to be rich, richer than astronauts and... Um, <laughs>
0: (laughs) At one point he says, he could have bought me fame and fortune. You're famous and you have a fortune. Shut the fuck up.
1: Absolutely. And and he makes some comments about how um, he's... He's lost everything because he was basically everything was riding on this one
0: experiment with the with the fusion meanwhile he's actions. still living in the penthouse.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's he's got
0: a butler.
1: Nothing suggests that Harry has bankrupted himself with this, and if he had, that would have been his foolish business decision. So, although he he has sort of taken on the semblance of being an adult and he fully looks the part, he's not acting like one. Not, not in a business context.
0: Mm. And Oscorp was huge. There was a giant building. There was a, a huge amount of R&D regarding that. Mm-hmm. And it would appear that that entire project, that entire building has been relegated to a single floor with Octavius' experiment, which goes completely tits up.
1: It does, rather.
0: MJ in this film. Again, it's really, really hard to get you to talk about MJ in a positive light. Uh, how, how, do, how is she growing up, if at all? How has she come on since the first movie and uh, has she, in fact, stepped backwards in some ways?
1: I think she has, to be honest with you, because she seems, she starts off seeming less idealistic. Um, she's She's got some of the things that she was looking for. Um, you know, She the whole thing about she wants to be an actress and she is now. And, um, you know, she's also got some modelling work and there's, there's this conversation that they have about this big, perfume billboard that's got her face on it but she seems very dissatisfied with how things are turning out um and one of the things we discussed while we were watching it i don't think i've seen this particular extended cut before
0: Oh, yeah, we watched the uh, 2.1 version, which is available on the Blu-ray as a, as a, a, a separate film.
1: Yeah, and there is a, a scene in which um, she's discussing, this is further into the film, after she's, um, John Jameson has proposed to her and she has agreed to marry him.
0: Also known as Manwolf, also known as Colonel Jupiter.
1: But not in this. Um, <laughs> So, so, so she said, yes, she'll marry him. And she's having this conversation with um, the, the woman who appears to be her best friend. She's her co-star in the play that she's in at the beginning. Um, she ends up being one of her bridesmaids later on. So we can assume that they're quite close. And the friend is basically challenging her on whether or not she loves John because she just doesn't seem enthusiastic enough about this this marriage. Um, and
0: that's uh, Vanessa Ferlito, who plays Butterfly in uh, Death Proof.
1: That's right, yeah. Who um, it, it was remarkably not Death Proof. Um, but they're talking about sort of the, the nature of love and, and what, uh, the the friend who... I don't think she's ever actually given a name in the film. We'll call her Butterfly, we'll shall we? We'll call her Butterfly, yeah. So so Butterfly is talking to her about what she considers love to be.
0: And this and- is like one of MJ's key scenes that wasn't even in the theatrical cut. Absolutely. It's one of the it's few times where she's not with Peter, not with John, not with Harry, and they're talking about a guy. So Bechtel test fail. Hmm.
1: But... The point being that you, you actually get to see some of how MJ is actually feeling. Now this is, this is one of the things that once upon a time it could be argued that this is what a superhero story was all about. But with things like the Avengers, and when I say things like the Avengers, what I really mean is the Avengers. <laughs> um, That's not enough for me anymore. Seeing everything from the perspective of the hero, understanding everything within the world through the hero's filter, that's boring to me now. That that tells me nothing. If there is more than one person involved in this story, and I mean, like, if it's just one person, it's got to be like Moon. It's literally just one person. If there's more than that one person involved, I would really like to see a slice of everybody's perspective, because that's what builds a a story for me. Now having everything interpreted through Peter's eyes is part of what has killed this a little bit for me. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Um, And this is one of the few scenes in which, as you say, you get to see MJ's um, feelings on things, not mitigated through someone else. She's not trying to convince somebody of something that's not true. At least she's not trying very hard because although she is saying to Butterfly, yes, I love him. Um, but you can see on her face that she's not really convincing herself brilliantly well. That isn't enough for her to realize that her love for John is insufficient to carry on and make that into a, a, a permanent relationship. Oh, a a marriage, in
0: fact. fairly far into that relationship.
1: They're playing the bridal march. <laughs> they, they are literally playing here... Not the bridal march, sorry. They are playing Here Comes the Bride when she suddenly realises that she can't go through with this.
0: There's a bit in The Wedding Singer where uh, the woman who d- jilts him at the altar comes back and says that she had second thoughts. And uh, Adam Sandler roars at her...
5: Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday!
0: Which has always been a really brilliant way for me to, to think about someone so inconsiderate that they wait until be the twelfth hour to actually say, oh yeah, by the way, I'm totally gutless. Or, uh, yeah, had second thoughts, couldn't really confront you about it, ran off, did my own thing. I have nothing... But distaste for people like that. So this makes the uh, final the finale of this film somewhat bitter, bitter for me.
1: It, it is a bit because you've you've got this scene where she's running through New York in smiling this wedding dress, smiling from ear to
0: ear, grinning away. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and fucked two families at once,
1: and it's just a bit.
0: It's not just a bit.
1: It's a lot. <clears throat> but as no, I pointed class. out, <laughs> that is. Technically, still better than doing what happened in Peep Show.
0: Oh yeah, actually, which man, I hope this doesn't it,
1: constitute a spoiler because it is a fair way down. But
0: oh, no, that's fine. Peep Show: somebody marries someone else and they're crying at the altar, and the other person's crying, going, "Oh my god, why are we doing this?" Yeah,
1: basically, they both realise it's an, it's the wrong thing to do, yet they go through with it anyway. So, from that angle, I suppose you could argue that. Okay. Lower than
0: that is basically wedding killing spree. Basically, (laughs) there's not much worse than it gets. Yeah. So basically, yeah. Below it goes: Spider-Man Two, Peep Show, Deadpool, (laughs) in Wolverine's origin.
1: Yeah, we're we're abbreviating wildly, obviously. Of course. There are stages in between.
0: So, Um, so yeah, MJ in this. She and Peter torture one another throughout the film because it's it's abundantly clear that she knows. She's not really accepting it. She's not really admitting it to herself. She's not discussing it with anyone. She can't discuss it with anyone. Peter can't discuss it with anyone. He's Spider-Man. When he kissed her at the end of the first one, she realized that Peter Parker was Spider-Man. She doesn't really ever confront that. And at the very, very end, when she sees him without his mask, what passes over her face is not, Oh my God, it's Spider-Man and he's Peter Parker. It's... Okay, so I guess I can't really do this anymore. And it's kind of... There's relief there because she doesn't have to really hide it from herself or from him. But that also means that she keeps going through clenched teeth. Don't disappoint me. You're late. Everyone else can see it, but not you. This guy's out breaking his neck for the city. And she's getting all weepy because... He won't see her. However, the blame is not entirely on her for her unrealistic expectations. She says to him at the end of the first one, there's only one person who's always been there for me. It's been you. And so that's pretty much the benchmark for who Peter Parker is. And in this, he really isn't there for her. And there are many, many times when he really bloody could have been. But he has... Here's Peter's real problem. He's not very good at organisation. That's really it. Do you know what Peter Parker needs? A PA. Is that it? A diary. Or diary. No, 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 because he needs somebody who's better at, someone who's naturally gifted at organising his shit. And uh, when it comes down to it, he needs a code. With great power comes great responsibility. Is a brilliant code to have, but it's very nebulous. It's very unspecified. What does he stop? What does he save? Who does he go to try to uh, prevent or to rescue or to, you know, if it's if the answer to this is everyone, he can't have a life. And unfortunately, this entire movie, it comes down to the fact that uh, Peter Parker is just a kid, uh, painfully so, kind of wrestling with that fact without ever really confronting it.
1: Well, he seems to have a a very childlike perspective of what, what responsibility constitutes.
0: Yeah, but well, you said before that, uh, at the end of the, the last one that he doesn't really know what responsibility is.
1: No. Responsibility, I suppose if you, if you take the fact that he's, um, his example for manhood is Ben, um, Ben's, uh, not necessarily his interpretation, but the version of responsibility which life handed him was to do a job for uh, an organization that clearly valued him so much that it made him redundant at the age of 68 mm. um, and, um, you know, spent his entire life dedicated to supporting himself and May, um, never looking for anything particularly more than they had. um Which, you know, they were happy with that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Peter has to be happy with that. And and he seems to have put himself in this box-marked responsibility, which he doesn't really want to be in, which is kind of why his spider powers start to dissolve. It's it, it's. I think his subconscious kicking back at the idea of having to be responsible.
0: Yeah, he's juggling far, far too much. He's basically said, right, there's a responsibility umbrella, I'm at the top, the entire world is at the bottom. What does Spider-Man really do? Who does he save? Think about it. He saves people falling out of buildings and when a construction job goes awry, he stops people who have taken a car and are speeding down the road with it with other people following them usually the police he's doing the police's job in this case he prevents diamond robberies and bank robberies again this is the police's job he prevents muggers he he prevents it would appear in the first one rapists from carrying out their deeds without being punched and then he hangs them up for the police to find he gets he intercepts before the crimes can be committed and uh, um and actually carried out without repercussions. And then he leaves the criminals there for the cops. In this very kind of cartoonish, you know, I mean, they, will, they may as well have crosses for eyes when the cops turn up after they've been hanging off the lampposts. When it comes down to it, every film, he deals with a overarching, exotic villain and their plans for the city, which usually involves some form of... I mean, it wasn't really clear with the Green Goblin, but it involved some sort of destruction. In this... The best of the of all of them, um, there's a very straightforward jeopardy that the city's in, which is that if Doc Ock uh, tries to replicate his experiment at the end, he's going to destroy the city inadvertently. Not out of, I want to destroy the city, but I want to make this thing work. And that's why it's the best threat of all of them. Technically, the lizard does the same thing in um, Amazing Spider-Man, but with far less of a understandable motive. Because he his brain seems to go, well, everyone would love being a giant lizard. I mean, look at me, I'm having the time of my life. No, that doesn't that doesn't scan. So if you look at what Spider Man actually does, he he has responsibility for everything and everyone. He has a police scanner so that even on the the few moments he gets to take a breather, he can go, oh God, something's come over the radio and jump out the window again. He doesn't take a break. He doesn't take any time off, and he doesn't have a code which allows him to go right. It is two in the morning. I am done. In Daredevil, Matt Murdock does his nightly whatever and then goes to bed and goes, that is it. I am done. I am in pain. I can't do any more. And that's Matt Murdoch's code. And usually it tends to be uh, uh, in a very small area of Hell's Kitchen. And usually it tends to be the people that he's been investigating anyway. So it's a very personal scenario. He doesn't basically listen for crimes that could be going on. Spider-Man's in sort of Batman territory in that he's working outside of what the cops do. He's a vigilante. But he's also doing the police's job. Nine times out of ten in the Spider-Man films, he's doing what the police and the fire departments, if it's a burning building, would do if they could be there quicker. And uh, in in many cases had powers to actually get them up to a, a high area or get them over to this car with, and, and, and web it up without actually hurting anybody. Mm. And it seems to be about sort of limiting the damage to the civilians. In, the, swipe,
1: yeah. The, the saving people side of things. That's a, a really crucial part of what he does. I actually think that by um, webbing up like jewelry heist um Criminals and um, things of that nature that are, are primarily to do with property, um, he, he may actually be putting more of a spanner in the works than he realizes, because if he stops them before they actually do anything, when the police arrive, they're just going to have to cut them loose and set them free.
0: Mm, I'm not sure how it works, but uh, yeah, again, it's a cartoonish way of looking at things.
1: Yeah, unless
4: back you in can... the day,
0: if someone was robbing a jewellery store, that's something that a little kid can understand. That's a basic wrong.
1: Absolutely, but if you collar them before they've actually got in, yeah. what have they actually done? It has also, to be more than insurance is going to be
0: something of a nightmare if they have smashed a door in, but it can't really be linked directly to them.
1: Indeed, and when it comes to a crime where preventing it is preventing somebody from being hurt, then that's that's a very simple yes. I need to get involved with this because I can prevent somebody from being mm-hmm. hurt. Um, but I mean that that aside, talking about uh, Peter needing someone to show him the way. Um, And somebody to give him an example of how to put his code together. He does. But if you look carefully, he actually has it to some degree. He has May, Mm -hmm. who is much, much more um, uh, responsive in this than she was in Spider-Man 1. Um,
0: Yep, in the first one, she's basically, don't worry about it. Every time he comes to her with a problem, just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it.
1: Absolutely. Now, because... She's just
0: lazy script writing.
1: In two, a lot of the problems that are getting thrown left, right and centre are hers. Financially, she's really, really struggling. It's really difficult to sweep that under the rug. You can try, but you can only do it for so long. Eventually, you're going to have to do something about it.
0: When she says, I'll be all right, it does seem like she's... um, She's gone through the uh, financial ringer, worked out that she can move to a very small place and still just about remain afloat. So when she says, I'll be all right, she's actually done her homework on that as opposed to just, oh, I'll be all right, probably somehow, let's not look at this one. Don't worry about it.
1: Absolutely. But in the course of that conversation with Peter, she also unwittingly, although there seems to be something about the, the tone of her voice that suggests that she knows more than she's letting on, um, but when she's talking to him about, uh, the, the neighbor kid who needs a hero, uh,
0: Henry Jackson.
1: Yeah. And, and for whom Spider-Man was Jackson. this, um, uh, this role model that he could look up to and, and that that was somebody that he really needs. I think what she's, what she's trying to point out to Peter there is that he needs a role model. He needs a hero, somebody who he can, Pattern himself after and that ultimately um, though he loved Ben, Ben is insufficient for that role um, but also she's when she's talking to him about sometimes you have to um, to do what's right, you have to let go of the things that you really want, she's giving him clues there as to how he can move forward, which is to sit down and work out exactly what it is that's right for him, um, or not, not what's right for him, but what he perceives to be the right thing to do, because ultimately the right thing to do is not the same for everybody, it's not as cut and dried as that, um, and again, it does come down to the fact that that he needs to give himself time to breathe, time to think, and to work out what he wants to do with this power, where he wants to take it, um, what he wants his life to be, and how that will dovetail into whether or not he's Spider-Man. And Octavius, as the man, before he gets tentacled up, is...
0: Not um, in the hentai sense.
1: No, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> but um, he he also provides this almost unwitting role model for Peter. He's in sciences, he's involved in the things that, that Peter is interested in, which do never I was. Think
0: he's in a position where he knows that the people that are under him who come to him for tutelage are immediately going to look up to him. So he has got this great persona to, to project to them. He knows he's a role model.
1: Yeah, he, he probably knows he is, but the degree to which he is a, mm. a template for Peter to patent. He doesn't realize his, his
0: true impact. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And, and even beyond he himself and what he does, if you look at the fact that he is married to uh, a woman who is of the arts, um, who is a very creative and loving and caring and understanding woman, and And many things that Peter interprets Mary Jane as being, I think he's wrong personally. i don't think m j has anywhere near as much depth to her as Rosie does, um but that's not the point she She kind of is in that that slot for
0: peter if you if you like well, she represents an anchor to Otto, and you see what happens to Otto when she gets t- yanked away
1: exactly um but in a way, that whole setup is octavius presenting peter with a negative yardstick this is what will happen if you allow your obsession to carry you forward the people that you love will get hurt
0: that's a double reason why uh, i said yesterday that um otto would actually have been a fantastic mentor for harry because yes. for a start, he could actually teach Harry a little bit about life, a little about, a bit about relationships and appreciating people. Because if you remember, folks, Harry doesn't really know how to deal with people if it doesn't involve throwing money at them. He can start off explaining all about the poetry and his relationship to Rosalie. Uh, but then if Harry was able to also see how far Doc went down, he would be able to see patterns in his own scenario, obsessing over Spider-Man.
1: And it is a very important lesson to learn.
0: And Uh, obsessing over his father, let's face it.
1: Yeah, that that obsession ultimately, anything that you give yourself over to, uh, to the exclusion of anything else, is going to ultimately end in a bad way. Especially those
0: closest to you.
1: Absolutely. The question is just, do you catch it in time?
0: Yeah. Uh, Octavius is often praised as a a fantastic example of a movie uh, antagonist that you can relate to. And there's actually two Ottos in this movie. There's the Otto Octavius up to the point where he has the uh, terrible, terrible accident. And then that actually carries over some way to him being Doc Ock. But then when he's talking to his arms in the shattered building, uh, which is uh, symbolic of uh, the ruin that his life has become, and he suddenly goes, no, there that, that couldn't have been a problem. It, ha, it was perfect, blah, 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 blah. His arc goes from a good man to a crazy obsessive who then decides to do a series of really awful things that are effectively unforgivable. And at the very, very end, that good man comes back. But in between time, you get a cartoon robot. Doc oh, literally. Literally. Doc Ock Ock when he robs the bank Doc Ock when he threatens Peter Doc Ock when he kidnaps Mary Jane Doc Ock when he fights Peter Uh, Doc Ock during the train scene Doc Ock when he's going up and down the building kidnaps May, gets smacked in the face chucks Peter all over the place that's a giant cartoon maybe not his motives because they have an overarching attachment to the original uh, Otto's plan overall which is that he's trying to replicate something that he got wrong and he can't see that it went wrong due to human error but his the actual actions are ridiculous. Like during the bank heist, he's stealing gold coins. This is like a video game or, or a really, really early sixties cartoon or comic. Or something. somehow he, he manages to get gold coins and turns them into packing crates with the components for a precious trillium sun device. I mean,
4: I demand no one can interfere with my fans. Looks like I got you with your plans down. I'll stop you with my all-powerful arms.
6: What are arms?
0: My spider senses are tingling. Something's going to...
3: Spider-Man,
0: look out! I'm not sure where... What's phase two? If phase three is sun creation Unlimited device, energy. And phase one is giant bags of buffalo nickels. <laughs> What the fuck is phase two? Did he go on the internet? Did he go to another bank as Dr. Octopus to cash them in? Did he go to the docks and buy them on the black market with giant bags of cash? Because they'd have said, Yo man, were you followed here? Well... Yes, because I'm, in, I'm an enormous octopus and the government has born-style spy satellites tracking my movements. Because they would. But of course they don't because this is a cartoon world. And that's what separates it from the goddamn Avengers. Things happen in this that would only happen in cartoons, especially in the middle. And again, during the train sequence, he's chucking people all over the place. He decides, I'm going to crash this train and all the children on it. For what? Just to piss off Spider-Man? Just to just to waylay him? You cannot look at that and proclaim relatable. In the same way as you can't really proclaim relatable when Loki goes into the um, uh, ambassador's reception in the Avengers and goes, right, we need this guy's eyeball. I'm going to use this eyeball removal device. There are points when Loki becomes unrelatable and tyrannical and I'm not going to consider that the Avengers is a sacred cow either. But I'm with Loki every step of the way, and there are times in um, Otto's arc when I just go, Oh, okay, Cartoon Octopus Man continue to be awesome to look at, but nonsensical in execution.
1: I think though, part of what you're talking about is is that is is Tom Hiddleston, not to put too fine a point on it, because when Loki is doing the wah ha ha with the eyeball-removing device, you still have Tom Hiddleston's face looking vaguely scared by what he's doing.
0: Mm. That bit when, uh, Arthur he gets out of the Triskelion Shield HQ and he's getting into the um, truck as it drives away, his face, it just flashes up. He's so scared. But he holds it back and he holds it in, and they never really focus on it. But that—that so was all. His but stuff.
1: we're not reviewing Avengers right
0: now. Oh, well, I wish we were. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but no, part of the the issue um, with uh, Doc Ock is that you you can't have that if seventy percent of this character is bad CG.
0: And also, the the other thirty percent is a nutter. Talking to his robot arms, who have a disproportionate amount of AI to make these suggestions to him. Where the fuck did they get all these things? I get that they that the arms want to survive, but the thoughts that they put into his head are so abstract and specific Mm. that it's hard to believe that any kind of AI came up with them.
1: Absolutely, especially
0: not AI that's used to handle heavy machinery. It's a giant, clever forklift truck.
1: But it is that's a really good way of putting it but yes you're right i mean you ultimately that's that's not how ai works you know a sci-fi 80s movies notwithstanding a, a an artificial intelligence will comprehend what you have programmed it to comprehend
0: what was and- that robot arms if you were me you'd diversify my robot portfolio <laughs>
1: Or words to that effect. But there's there's also, there are um, what appear to me, I mean, I could be completely wrong on this. I could be totally misinterpreting. We haven't seen any of the, the behind-the-scenes stuff for this one yet. Um, but there are techniques that they appear to have used to serve the CG that actually are to the detriment of the character. His sunglasses.
0: mm now, they the take b- away his humanity, they because they have humanity, to hide his face. They have to hide his face because they
1: can't replicate it properly in CG, which means that when he is human, and we should be seeing his face emoting, he's wearing the sunglasses because we need to be able to match that up with the mm-hmm. CGI character wearing the sunglasses. Now, there is one point where this actually works, but they can't do this all the time. At the very beginning, when he's, he's doing the first experiment, he has mm-hmm. the, the tinted goggles
0: on. They dehumanise him. They take away... The the kind man's face that we've been watching
1: they do but there's a moment and it's it's not subtle but for me it worked when um he is stood so that one eye is in shadow <laughs> and the lens is completely black nice. and the other eye is reflecting or the other lens rather is reflecting the um the sun that he's created <laughs> Mm -hmm. And you have that moment where he is perfectly split between light and dark. And it's basically, this is the point where he chooses which way to go.
3: Mm -hmm. And
1: when he sees that people are in danger, he continues because he doesn't want to stop because now he's let it carry him forward.
0: Forever chasing the light and thus shrouded in darkness.
1: Absolutely. But you can't sustain that image consistently throughout the whole film.
0: Well, when he's going up and down a building.
1: Absolutely. So...
0: To their credit, Doc Ock in the cartoons and comics wore big black glasses most of the time. You never really did get to see his eyes. Because he was supposed to look dehumanized. And because it was really hard to crack through that shell. And because he... For the longest time, he was a nothing character. You know, he had the hots for for Aunt May, it would appear. Even though she's a decrepit monkey skeleton.
1: (laughs) She's not that bad.
0: He, w- he wanted to marry her, but um, yeah, they've um, made him much more complex in more recent years, possibly brought on by this. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, with what they had to work with, what we see at the beginning, Otto Octavius is a wonderful character. He's someone I wanted to see so much more of. Alpha Rolina is a fantastic actor for a start, and the natural, organic way that he talks and the 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 fondness with which he banters back and forth with Rosalie, and that the way that Donna Murphy sort of puts her head on one side and sort of looks at him with real love in a way that, that it, it just, a lesser actress, would, it would just come off as crass. it would be like, oh, I love you. But there's this, it seems like they've got this genuine relationship, and it's surprising that they're just actors in this scenario. And that's what really sells you. The character, And then he turns into a giant cartoon. So then at the end, whereas in the first Spider-Man, Norman sort of tried to fob Peter off with his Norman persona, but it's like, nah, the goblin has full control at this point. Um, the reason this is so much more of an impactful antagonist is that he decides to go against the cartoon, against the maniacal robot crazy guy, and go back to the man he once was and achieve what he possibly can. Yeah. That's why people remember this character.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and as if you can tune out the bit in the middle, then mm. that's,
0: that's great. Well, not tune out, just <laughs> kind of... Uh, basic. It's not tune out, it's, it's don't think too deeply about this. And unfortunately, that really can't be the ethos when you're making a superhero movie, for me.
1: Indeed. Here's a question for you. Is part of the flaw, then not so much a flaw as that it is this is a translation of a very simplified age of comic books when we look at at the avengers and what's been built around that a lot of what they've created in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is building on much more recent comic books. And the medium has matured and and grown up and expanded and deepened and got more subtle as as time's gone on.
0: When Spider-Man 2 came out, it was only a few years after the uh, the 90s when it was all about the superstar artists.
1: But they also seem to have... um, I mean, if you're you're talking about them replicating um, Octavius's original... Uh, visage we know a lot of what they've tried to do visually is based on a 60s interpretation of spider-man so they're going back even further than that Mm. the best mcu film we've seen recently is the winter soldier which is based on a very recent comic
0: Mm. well 2004 so around about the same year
1: but this is what i'm saying spider-man Um, Spider-Man 2, they're not based on Spider-Man books that were written three months ago. They're based on stories from decades past.
0: Spider-Man No More is a one-issue Spider-Man story written by Stan Lee and John Romita Sr. So that's how early it was. Issue 50, July 1967, that bit where he leaves the spider suit in the bin um that's totally from this so yeah. that's how early we're talking here
1: absolutely and and i am not saying here i am absolutely not saying that there aren't brilliantly subtle and tragic and deep and human stories in comic books from the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s i'm that's not but what i'm saying they do tend at all. to
0: move in broader brush strokes
1: exactly and those issues stand out because they're fairly rare and they are remembered because they stood out at the time. But maybe this is why it feels so much like a fairy tale to me.
0: <laughs> I because... was going to ask you about that, actually. You, you see this whole trilogy as a modern day fairy tale. And within that structure lies both its strengths and the troubling material. Uh, Absolutely. Can you elaborate on that. One?
1: Well, I mean, what, well, what I was about to say was that if you look at, at um, what tends to happen again, not always, but when, Filmmakers try to interpret uh, a straight fairy tale um, into cinema without really adding anything to it. um, Without putting any um, multiple layers in order to make that story worth a two hour running time. Um, You tend to get things which don't work brilliantly well. Um, and don't give you that much to look at and to uh, to interpret and to understand, which is what fairy tales are supposed to be. At their core, the vast majority of them are cautionary tales. Mm. They are what... Basically, they are what you kept your children under control with if you were too poor
0: to afford a fence. Um, Thin on characters, heavy on morality.
1: Absolutely, but, but not even necessarily... Um, not intricate morality, certainly not adult morality, not not a shades of gray way of looking at the world and instruction in how to interpret um, the more subtle things that you would come across at its basic level. Don't go in the forest. The wolves will eat you. You know, it, it's difficult to then expand that into a story which is going to um, absorb and capture particularly analytical people. Um, because once you've got past the essence of the being eaten by wolves is bad, it would be a good idea to avoid this. Um, where else do you go with that? Um, it's only when you start to add in deeper layers and and the uh, the metaphors and allegories that you get with things like Company of Wolves, where it's, okay, but now we're not actually talking about wolves, are we? Um, that's We're when actually talking about
0: burgeoning sexuality. Absolutely.
1: And, and that's the point at which it gets female interesting.
0: Female gender role application throughout Indeed, society. That's,
1: that's where it gets interesting for me. But I think...
0: Oh well, that's a good film, by the way, folks. We're probably not going to ever review it, but A Company of Wolves by Neil Jordan—it's great stuff.
1: It looks horrible. I will—I will, oh, I will God, hands up confess that it's, it, it's, some of the effects are just oh man, so poor. it is at
0: times not on purpose laughable.
1: Yes, absolutely. But if you could look past that, it, there is a lot of stuff going on, intriguing at its heart. I was trying to work out why I love and hate. Fairy tales simultaneously and possibly equally. And the simplicity at the core of them is what it comes down to. Um, If that simplicity is elaborated on and made more intricate for a more in depth and multi layered and ambiguous story, then that will interest me. If you stick with the simplicity but just make it longer, that's going to lose me. And especially if you stick with the simplicity and push for a happy ending, because, like I said, cautionary tale. If you're going to keep them simple, then what they have to be telling you is the stuff to stay away from. The the things that you absolutely must take this on board because your life depends on it. Your life doesn't depend on Chase after the man you really love in your wedding dress, having left the man that you're not all that fussed about stood at the altar. (laughs) You can't present that in a wholly positive way and not then have, I would like to think, lots of intelligent people going, hang on a minute, this isn't entirely okay.
0: Well, I'm assuming that whole end bit was supposed to heighten tension. I mean, will she marry him? Which is something that uh, people who uh, throw together rom-coms think girls like. However, it's impossible to pull that one off without MJ looking really bad as a character. Again, it's, it's one of those ones where it's like, let's not think about this too much. Yeah, you can make spur-of-the-moment decisions, but ultimately there is a responsibility there, which MJ appeared to be shucking. Mm.
1: But then again you do have that last frame which lingers on her looking apprehensive. Mm. And
0: there's gonna be a payoff for this one.
1: Exactly. Internally questioning whether or not she's made the right decision or whether she really can be the supportive superhero partner that she has basically stood in his doorway and said, this is what I'm willing to be. Mm. But has she actually thought about it? That's part of why I have such difficulty appreciating MJ as a character in these films. Is there ever a time when you can point to a decision that she makes, an action that she takes and say, yeah, she's clearly thought that through? It might not end up being the right decision but she's clearly thought about it no she just jumps into everything both feet first or hangs back doing nothing because she can't muster the energy to to make any decisions or take any actions and just waits for things to happen to her
0: And we could say, well, that's uh, being a teenager, that's part and parcel of being young. However, when we reviewed Iron Man, I said that it was a huge, huge deal that we finally got to see Tony Stark and Pepper Potts adults in a superhero movie. That was a huge thing. And that's because of these films. It had to feel like it had been frustratingly done to death for the idea of adults playing this game to feel fresh and new. to otto octavius uh, at one point he says um intelligence is not a privilege it's a gift uh, at the very very end uh peter says yeah, you said intelligence was a gift and he uh nods his head and says it's a privilege which is the opposite of what he said earlier which is it's not a privilege however he's wrong the first time and he's right the second time intelligence is a privilege and they don't really make a, a big deal out of that fact. It just seems to be that they haven't checked the scripting. It is a privilege. You are born with intelligence, and it is something that uh, inherently comes brings with it its own responsibility. A gift is something you can just do with it as you wish. It's a trifle. It's yours to, to, to play around with. It's like uh, your looks could be a gift. Intelligence is something that you actually have to... Foster. ...use.
1: Or you will lose it. Yeah. Do you know how many IQ points I've lost since I was doing my exams?
0: I don't know. Maybe doing these podcasts is driving them back up again.
1: I hope so. I might try another IQ test in a few months and see what's happening with it. It
0: takes that much brain power and just pounding the old brain cells to actually get this shit said. (laughs) Just to get it formulated in your head. It's harder than it sounds. Anyway, do you know who we've hardly talked about at all? Spider-Man? Spider-Man and Peter Parker. Um, principally because, aside from the fact that we've already expressed that it's all about him wrestling with these uh, responsibilities and not being able to organise himself and being a, a dithering a bit, he's not actually wholly, massively different from how he was in the first film. He's less of a little shit than he is in the third film. I, in the second one, it, it does boil down to the fact that he's no good at organising and he hasn't ever really been able to step back, look at his life, look at his various re- actual responsibilities and his various self-attributed responsibilities he and decided know. what he can and can't do.
1: He doesn't know what he wants, and if he gets it,
0: he'll be too old to use it. So like I say, he's the confused child in this film. He's not the adult um, trying to uh, manage his various responsibilities. He's not the uh, teenager um, driven by hormones anymore, although... He does get very booby weenie when it turns out that MJ has another uh, uh boyfriend. Because that's the thing. Again, he tortures MJ by saying, oh, I, I do care about you a lot, but unfortunately I cannot be close to you. And she tortures him by going, I don't know. She basically comes on to him and says sort of, uh, what were you going to say to me? And he's like, "Uh, nothing. And then she walks three steps away from him and goes, oh, I'm seeing someone. It's like, you met someone in those three steps?
1: It does seem like something she was kind of saving up to throw at him if he didn't give her the accepted response,
0: yeah. doesn't it? I'll hit him with this whammy, see if that'll shock him into some action. Which, of course, it was. I mean, that's how it was written. Um, it makes her seem manipulative and uh, uh, passive-aggressive is probably a good way of putting it. Like, I mean, she doesn't know how to handle Peter Parker. And that it's... Proven, She doesn't know how to to handle Peter Parker. Their relationship in Spider-Man 3 is a fucking wreck.
1: She could try not handling him and just being honest. That would be a
0: way forward. Neither of them are able to see each other as people either. Both of them idealise the other. Mm. They're more conceptual to one another than actually people. And until they learn to realise that they are people, they can't really live side by side and in spider-man 3 that doesn't happen that's not the focus of the film
1: yeah she's still after positive reflection and validation from him and he's still oh, after. not just him
0: the city he gets uh, his validation from the city and she's like well i wanted people to say i was awesome let's she deal with a- that later let's deal with that later We'll deal with that when we do Spider Man Three. The but film
1: the- opens with a huge billboard of her face, looking beautiful. Yeah, if that's that- not an entire city
0: being given the opportunity to validate you, what is? That's in Spider Man Two when she's successful. Spider Man Three is when her career starts hitting the shit house, um, which is you know liable to bring anyone to depression, and it's understandable. But the way she handles it is. Um, Less than heroic. Less than heroic. Right. We'll, we'll do that during Spider-Man 3. We'll have enough to complain about during Spider-Man 3. Yes, I'll we bring will. In that into Spider-Man 2. Uh, uh, what I'm pointing out is that at the end of this particular corridor is not a decent resolution. It shows promise. It shows trouble. It shows conflict. It shows the possibility that they could maybe get through it. But what that does not actually resolve itself in any meaningful way.
1: Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why the gloss was taken off for us, because now we know that it does not continue on an upward trajectory.
0: Yeah. I mean, people always tend to sort of go, oh, yeah, the first two were great, but the third sucked. But that has an impact. Mm. It's like the Iron Man 1 and 2. I honestly went off Iron Man a little bit after Iron Man 3. Now that I've seen spider Man's 1 and 2, and I, I kind of like Iron Man 3 more. I didn't used to. But um, these, these two sacred cows, which I'd always put very, very highly on my list, have slipped a little. So, um, question, why is Peter really losing his spider powers? And this relates, of course, to what you were saying earlier about um, his mind striking out against him.
1: Mm. Well, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of, um, I mean, obviously it's, it's nowhere near as, as devastating and distressing. But if you look at somebody in the grip of an emotional breakdown quite a lot of the time what has led them to be there is too much pressure, too Mm. much Mm. um, trying to juggle life and work and family and relationship and children and this and that and everything and financial difficulties. And something in your your perception of, of how you are able to deal with things just shuts down and says, right, obviously this is not something that you are consciously saying to yourself, but something in your mind goes, we can't cope with this anymore. We are going to switch off and power down and, you know, try and heal because this is too much. And I think that his spider powers failing is basically an expression of that. Yeah. Because a lot of them are particularly with, I mean, it's, it's, It can be interpreted as a small thing or a huge thing, but with his web shooters being uh, a part of him, not something that he had to create, he's he's not got really any control over them. He doesn't really know how they work. They just do. I mean, he's figured out the whole, you know, press your hand thing and stuff squirts out, but he doesn't know how that works. So he has nothing to fall back on when it ceases to work.
0: So subconsciously, uh, his brain is telling him, you don't want to do this anymore. You're forcing yourself through it. But what if we just shut these off? (laughs) Uh, Rather, uh, you could say this is oddly self-destructive as it tends to shut off when he's 60 feet up in the air. Um, but when you go into a self-destructive spiral, it doesn't happen at the best and safest of times. In fact, it tends to happen at the worst of times. So that's oddly, um, appropriate and realistic that it would strike him down in this dangerous scenario over and over again. What I will say, though, is that they play fast and loose with physics in this. Like, I mean, I-, I know that the Spider-Man films are not to watch for physics, but he falls from fucking 50 stories onto his back onto a steel pipe, crunching it underneath his back, gets back up again. Then he falls 70 stories onto a dumpster neck-first, smashing his head against it. Then he falls, around about the same distance, onto a car, crunching on his back. And then during the train scenario, he falls onto the road, off the top of the train overpass in New York City, onto his spine, and then skitters along on the pavement and then sk- hikes himself back up again. And then Doc Ock throws him into an oncoming train and he smashes against the front. Right. Spider-Man's very strong... But he's not invincible. He doesn't have unbreakable skin like Luke Cage. He is not invulnerable like Superman. He gets cuts and bruises and he bleeds and he gets breakages in the comics. He's had like shattered arms and and broken his leg. And he, he can come to harm just the same as everyone else. What he goes through in this movie over all the other three of them is death. Followed by death, death and death. Things that would just straight out kill or completely paralyze a man, falling from these heights and smashing into these incredibly uh, fast-moving vehicles. But again, it's Don't Think Too Hard About It! Raindrops
6: are falling on my head And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those rain
0: and then when he's Spider-Man no more, and he's happily sauntering along, and they got raindrops keep falling on my head, made famous in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, a film I owe my existence to, I might add. It was the uh, first film my parents went on a date on. And it was 1969, so if uh, they'd gone to see another western at the time, The Wild Bunch... It would have been an awesome film, but my mother, hating Sam Peckinpah-style violence, would probably never have wanted to see my father again, and I wouldn't exist. So thank God for Butch and Sundance. Anyway, so he's sauntering along to Randovsky falling on my head. And you pointed this out, that when the police cars go driving past him with the sirens on, you said, in New York, that usually means someone's dead. And he goes, hey, I don't have to help anymore, and chomps down on a hot dog. Yeah, someone's dead. But yeah, he's taken control of his life and he's cleared his plate. And while he still doesn't seem to be massively well organised, it does seem like without the Spider-Man thing to have to cope with, he could probably have juggled his life just about.
1: That notion of him giving up the obligation to help simply because he doesn't have the ability to help anymore... It is addressed, but I think that's a flawed perspective, because as an average human being, I'd like to think that if I walked past somebody who was obviously in distress, hmm. I would try to help.
6: Because I'm free, nothing's
1: even if what I could actually do was pretty limited.
0: That is seen as the line, though. That's something that he looks back on and regrets and thinks, I probably should have and could have saved that man. I don't necessarily need to be Spider-Man, but I do need to be a man, and that's what makes him go into the burning building. That's the scene in The Incredibles when Bob Parr's looking down the alleyway and that guy's getting beaten up, and Peter's looking at him from uh, just a few feet away and thinking, "Ah, probably should help that guy, but no. that That guy's Steve Rogers... And Bucky ain't coming. Indeed. It's like, okay, right? is there any common decency in the world at this point?
1: Yes, it's being beaten up in an alleyway. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I I think it's, it's obviously not, I don't know, that whole sequence, it almost seems like these are the things that Peter is trying not to think too hard about, which is... Roughly the equivalent of saying that you can get better from depression by looking on the bright side of things.
0: But then again, this is presented in a film where we're not supposed to be thinking too hard about things. It's really weird. I mean, it, It's hard to find the sweet spot, the biting point where we're thinking just hard enough about it. But
1: that's... It, it is a very tricky area of the film to interpret because at this point are we supposed to be happy for peter the music would suggest that we are the grin on his face the fact that he's obviously very satisfied with his hot dog which given that it was bought from a new york hot dog cart,
0: <laughs> well, porcupine than we were led to expect rat pigeon and <laughs> raccoon
1: absolutely um you know are, are we supposed to to feel that He is now getting the things that he wants and therefore that's a good thing. Or are we supposed to be thinking, Maguire, come here and let me slap you upside the head. This is ridiculous.
0: No, we're supposed to be thinking this is just our lives and he's so dreadfully envious of us. He wants just to be a bozo. It's Schadenfreude, because we watch him and we think to ourselves, ah, but you're going to need to go back and be Spider-Man again, and aren't you going to be miserable when that happens? But that's what you've got to do, because with great power, I have no power. And with no power comes no No responsibility.
2: responsibility. (laughs) I put the beds in the box, Mrs. Parker. Thank you, Henry. Hi, Peter. Hey, Henry. You're getting tall. Henry, why don't you put those cookbooks in with the mixer? Okay. You take Spider-Man's pictures, right? I used to. Where is he? Henry and I agree. We don't see his picture in the paper anymore. He, uh, quit. Why? Wanted to try other things. He'll be back, right? I don't know. You'll never guess who he wants to be. Spider-Man. Why? Well, he knows a hero when he sees one. Too few characters out there, flying around like that, saving old girls like me. Lord knows, kids like Henry need a hero. Courageous, self-sacrificing people, setting examples for all of us. Everybody loves a hero. People line up for them, cheer them, scream their names, and years later they'll tell how they stood in the rain for hours just to get a glimpse of the one who taught him to hold on a second longer. I believe there's a hero in all of us that keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes us noble, and finally allows us to die with pride. Even though sometimes we have to be steady and and give up the thing we want the most. Even our dreams. Spider-Man did that for Henry, and he wonders where he's gone. He needs him. Do you think you could lift that desk and put it into the garage for me? But don't strain yourself.
0: Okay. That's a wonderful little little piece of cinema and uh, a credit to the... It it defines the superhero genre. It, It brings it right down to the small scale and what this whole thing's about.
1: I do like that perspective on death. Because death is something that is... Considering how huge an event it is, considering that it will happen to everybody and has happened to everybody who has ever lived before us. It's the one thing that no one can escape. Um, It is addressed somewhat infrequently in media. and
0: Certainly not in a way that's not absolutely terrifying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to look at it in terms of this is an inevitability... The only thing that changes is how we approach death. And if we have lived a good life and a right life and we have not necessarily achieved but if we have things that we can point to and say that was the right thing to do or that was the kind thing to do or that was the wise thing to do that we can then let go of that life knowing that there were points at which we lived it in the best way we possibly could.
0: A few little uh bits of detail before we roll up for the finale. um the evil dead car is in this same as it was in the first one. It's the same car, obviously it's in May's garage at this point, having been stolen by that uh thief in the first one and then returned to her it's uh, been st- really
1: sprayed as well, isn't it?
0: No, it's still yellow oh. It's always been yellow. Okay. Um, Stan Lee is in this again. I don't think we mentioned him the first time. He rescued a kid at the parade, and he just pulled someone out of the way in this second one. This is during the early Stan Lee cameos. So his best one actually comes in Spider-Man 3.
1: Well, it was literally just, let's all thank Stan for turning up. Uh,
0: it, it's a good one, actually. It's a, it's a nice closer. We'll, we'll get to that <laughs> soon. Uh, Bruce Campbell is the usher. I'm convinced still the same guy, just hounding Peter around the city. I, I really kind of wish that Peter had just punched this guy out and blasted into the room and just, like, you know, caused a real scene, but just shown MJ, look, I fucking made it, before he gets dragged away. Instead, he, he, just, he is such a wimp in this film. He's such a... Like... When he's struggling with the mop and bucket during the pizza delivery thing, and he's he's delivering pizzas for Asif Mandvi, who was in, lastly, in the last Airbender movie, he was the one who went to the secret library and found several scrolls. You know that uh, pizza delivery place that only sells Dr. Pepper? Um... That seems to rely only on one pizza delivery guy and has uh, 29 minutes or you get it free, even in New York, even with New York traffic, even though that's ridiculous. I'm sure there are places in New York that do that, but they probably don't only rely on one pizza boy. And then he's fucking around with the... bucket and stuff that woman's like Ugh, not paying for this i, 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 I would just have burst in there thrown the bin, like so crazy and so I are have the guy look, look like he had a screw say he fucks around with the and bucket and then ran. takes his bungee cord and goes Firestar. oh okay he just lied I, I, god I, I hate Tony talk and this is his best appearance as spider-man this is why i love tony stark so much We get to see uh, Dylan Baker as Kirk Connors, who's only mentioned in the first one and appears again in the uh, third one. He must be like, I'm going to be Lizard the next time. I'm going to be Lizard. going to be... Oh, fucking Reese Siffins. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no. And, uh, but uh, nice touch of having him only have one arm as well. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson just returns in exactly the same capacity.
4: Crazy scientist turns himself into some kind of a monster. Four mechanical arms welded right onto his body. <laughs> Guy named Otto Octavius winds up with eight limbs. What are the odds? Hoffman! Yeah. What are we gonna call this guy? Uh, uh, Dr. Octopus. That's crap. Uh, uh Science Squid? Crap. Doctor Strange. That's pretty good. But it's taken. Wait, wait, I got it. Dr. Octopus. Uh, but uh, I like it. Of course you do. Dr. Octopus. New villain in town. Doc Ock. Uh, genius. What, are you looking for a raise? Get out.
5: Spider-Man wasn't attacking the city. He was trying to save it. That's slander.
4: It is not. I resent that. Slander is spoken. In print, it's libel. Tomorrow morning, Spider-Man, page one, with a decent picture this time. Move Conway to page seven. There's a problem with page I make it page eight and give him 10% off. I okay. make it 5%. That
5: can't be done. Get out of here.
3: Boss, your wife's in the line. She says she lost a checkbook.
5: Thanks for the good news. Could you pay me in advance? <laughs>
4: You serious? Thank you for what? Standing there? The planetarium tomorrow night, eight o'clock. There's the door.
0: You pointed out that uh, Ro- Joe Robertson, Robbie, is the only person in this entire film who acts like a responsible adult.
1: Yes, there are. Basically, it suddenly struck me that every man in this particular film acts like a spoiled child who yep. throws fits when they don't get their own
0: way. And uh, Joe. Barely characterised at all, but uh, with with what little he has, t- seems like a, a decent stand up guy. Yeah, it's less so for the women because they they tend to come off a little better. This is a this is a pretty inclusive film in that the women ca- kind of get some of the the best stuff to do. At least May does.
1: I was just about to say <laughs> May does, and I suppose I like Betty. Yeah, Betty Elizabeth. So bit. we
0: didn't mention her before, but it's um, her
1: part is so small. Y- yeah, it's you know, it it's not.
0: I've always liked Elizabeth Banks, though. She's got a, a charm to her. She does, yes. Mm. Um, but also in the extended edition, J.J. dresses up in the Spider-Man costume. Which wouldn't fit him. Of course it wouldn't. It's ridiculous. He puts his an,
1: feet out through the bottom.
0: It's such a, a, a surreal moment. It's, it's hard not to laugh. I'm, yes. I'm wondering what, what I'll feel the next time I watch it. But uh, no, it, uh, it's, it's great fun to watch. And obviously something that I'm not sure would have worked perfectly in the uh, cinema, But It it just would have thrown everyone off so much.
1: Well, it feels like an outtake.
0: Yeah, it does. It's like a a, a blooper. The guy brings in this Spider-Man costume that he found in a bin, and JJ concludes from that that Spider-Man has publicly hung up his costume. He could just have thrown one out. There's no proof for this. And the Bugle publishes Spider-Man no more. Full stop. No question mark. We know it to be true. It then comes back with crime up 75%. Where are they getting this figure from? I'm fairly certain fraud was unaffected by Spider-Man. I'm fairly certain wife-beating all manner of crimes that cannot be directly solved with thwip. And honestly, when it comes to crime up 75%, that, that's an appalling amount of crime. I mean, if you know how much crime actually takes place in New York and how many police precincts it takes to cover and just to keep that in control, not to eliminate it, just to keep it in control, keep, stop it from turning into absolute anarchy. And Spider-Man was suddenly the inclusion of him. Like, basically, if spider Man's dealing with that much of the crime, then, like... That implies 75% of the police force can just not come into work.
1: If he's around. Why had New York not devolved into complete
0: yeah, terror? It should be the Dark Knight up. Rises without Spider-Man under that circumstance. Crime up 75%. Oh well, that's a great fun little figure to put out there, except for the fact that New York is burning if that comes to be the actual case.
1: That may well be true. Or was. As I understand it, crime in New York has gone down substantially in the last decade and a half.
0: Thank you very much, Giuliani. So, yeah, they they need no evidence or just ask this scientist for their headlines. (laughs) They just say them. At this stage, the whole thing of, uh, I want Spider-Man, and uh, JJ dissolving into craziness, basically... It doesn't matter after that point if J.J. has this agenda against Spider-Man. It doesn't matter. He has proved that he is a genuine help to the city. So technically the city all loving him at the beginning of Spider-Man 3 is an oddly natural progression of the story, even though it shoots the story in its face. There's also some slightly uncomfortable racial stereotypes.
1: When you say slightly uncomfortable... Very Go with very.
0: I'm talking about Mr. Dickovich here. And,
1: and the Asian lady in the subway playing the violin.
0: And his uh, his boss, the, uh, the pizza guy. And yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. And the fact it, that the reason his work colleague is not in today is because he got deported.
0: Ooh. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that if it had been in the Avengers, people would have been like, oh, come on. Like, I I don't think the world's come on that far since 2004, but maybe it has. I mean, the Dickovich family, when they're sitting around, they're they're playing this sort of vaguely Eastern European music, and uh, the daughter appears to be cooking gasoline on the stove.
1: Yeah, she drops a ladle on it, and it just bursts into flames.
0: And, and, you know, they're just sitting around an empty table, staring at one another and going, oh, this is like the old country. And, yeah, like I say, kind of uncomfortable. But we're living in a post-Borat world now. (laughs) Maybe the proliferation of my wife meme and the whole Borat thing kind of drew attention to how uncomfortable that kind of humour actually is now. So yeah, maybe it changed the world. We don't know.
1: Well, if it drew attention to it for you, then that's good.
0: Yeah, a lot of the, especially in the extended version of this, um, a lot of the uh, decisions that Peter makes, especially about being Spider-Man, seem to come from his doctor, who plays armchair shrink with him. And it goes into this elaborate um, series of this is what I've been told to do, which may or may not directly apply to you, Peter. In fact, they really, really don't. And it, in fact, sounds like terrible psychology. And really, Peter needs to see a shrink. In a good way, I I think that that would be very progressive for him.
1: He actually says to MJ at the beginning. She says she's seeing somebody. He goes, "Oh, like a therapist? Oh, that's great." Or words to that effect. She
0: also needs a therapist. It would help her to to get to get her head around her issues with Peter and Spider Man and herself and her father. This next one's a question: How does Doctor Octopus put on his long coat?
7: Yeah. I thought maybe, like, he cuts the back out of it, then he walks forward 20 yards, away from his coat hanging up on a hook, with a hole in the back of it, extends his arm, and walks backwards, poking the arms through the back of the coat.
0: Um, when he talks to the arms, I was reminded of one thing, which is going to be completely lost on all Americans and half the Brits. Rimmer and Mr. Flibble. <laughs> and I'll leave it at that, because if I have to explain it, then... It's not worth it. It doesn't make any sense... It doesn't make any sense to anyone still listening. So yeah, we can't possibly do that. Who'd clear up the mess? Also, Alfred Bellina has been rendered three times as three different characters in Lego. Doctor Octopus, Satipo in Raiders of the Lost Ark, as in Throw Me The Whip, and uh, Sheikh Amar from the failed follow-up to the Pirates of the Caribbean series, which failed to spawn three sequels, Prince of Persia, wherein he played the Cheeky Cockney Jack Sparrow type Guy who turns up way too late For that to really be his role And isn't in it enough And isn't really given that much to do um, Jin from Lost is also in this As Dr Octopus's assistant uh, During the um, thing Daniel day The The one that made both of us Drop our jaws to the floor And I was so amazed that I kept shtum About this until Sharon saw it So that I wouldn't spoil it for her Joel McHale is in Spider-Man 2 If you haven't seen Community, that will make no difference to you at all. If you have, you'll be convinced that Jeff Winger himself is in Spider-Man 2. Just before he went off to work for the law firm, he worked in a bank and he made old ladies sad and didn't give them toasters and then tried opportunistically to take a rolling coin and got slapped by Aunt May and went, Ow! He's hilarious to watch! And I love the fact that he's in this. So what makes him Spider-Man again? What brings him out of all of this funk? What makes him really Spider-Man? Because after May's speech, I thought, right, well, well, that's it then. He's got to come away from this feeling completely reinvigorated and able to actually face up to this terrible inner demon. And then when he he jumps and squirts, it doesn't work a third time, and he falls and hits the car and says, "My back, my back!" and then toddles off like an old man. Um, and that really deflated me because it was like. Okay, we exp- I suppose it's supposed to. You're supposed to think, you're back, yeah, Spider-Man, he's back. And then he only really comes back in when MJ is kidnapped, because that's the button that makes Spider-Man spring into action for an end sequence. MJ is kidnapped in the first one, the second one, and the third one, and Spider-Man springs into action to go and save her, and she hangs from a thing and screams.
1: Must be Tuesday. Must be um... Tuesday.
0: That appears to be it, trying to protect the people he loves. That's what makes him really Spider-Man.
1: Well, when it comes down to it, this is what we've we kind of been getting agitated with him for not doing. Figuring out what it is he wants, what it is that motivates him, um, what his goals are, and they are all the same thing. MJ, safe and happy. Uh, no, MJ, safe and either... Safe and unhappy. With him. She's MJ. Or single and miserable. Because MJ... Happy with John, he doesn't seem too wild about.
0: So, with him and miserable, or alone and miserable?
1: No, no, no. With him, I don't, actually, I don't think happy really comes into it. Safe and because with because he him. gets to
0: be a happy Spider Man while she's miserable at the beginning of Spider Man Three.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, he gets to be happy. He happily swings off from the apartment, having been given her blessing to go off and go get him, Tiger. Mm. Go be Spider Man. I'll be here being... In fact, I'm just going to go and hang myself in the closet with the wedding dress. I'll be there if you need me.
0: (laughs) With your webbing. It's symbolism. It's symbolism, folks. I mean, technically, if you want to get really pedantic about it, when she breaks up with him on the bridge in Spider-Man 3 and he does that little fat, creased-up face... (sighs) As soon as he got back into costume and tried to jet off again, he should not have been able to because his spider powers would have failed because he's truly miserable inside. In the original Spider-Man 1, he actually wants to feel more powerful. He's bullied at school and he's up against it and he feels insignificant. And these powers come at just the right time when he wants to feel more special. And then when he finds out that being special isn't what he thought it would be, he kind of wills them to go away.
1: In which case, them coming back should really have happened at a point when he matures and realises that being able to help people is more important than Peter getting what he wants.
0: Which is exactly the moment after Aunt May gives him his marching orders.
1: Yeah, so
3: basically... That's when
0: they should have come back. Instead, it turns into this really kind of pathetic, well, I guess if MJ's kidnapped, then it comes back.
1: So, effectively, there's an entirely superfluous 3.5 act um, that doesn't need to be there.
0: It does to resolve the Doc Ock thing.
1: But really, all
0: Peter has to do for that is to turn up and inspire him.
1: Yeah, and I, I pointed this out at the time. Why... Why, oh, why, oh, why does Doc Ock take off with MJ? There's no logical... He doesn't give a toss about MJ as a person. He's not trying to attack Spider-Man's heart like the Goblin was trying to do. So why does he need to take MJ?
0: There's a whole protracted... It's all just, let's face it, to get him to kidnap MJ so she can be hanging from something and screaming. Exactly. But he goes Pointless. to Harry and he wants the trillium. He wants the special, like the rarest thing in the world. And Harry clearly didn't spend everything on this first experiment because he's got all the rest of it in his wall safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he wants Spider-Man. Doc Ock will get him Spider-Man. Doc Ock realizes that Peter Parker knows about Spider-Man. And clearly Peter Parker cares about this MJ girl So he kidnaps MJ, so Peter will get Spider-Man to come get MJ. And then he fights him on the train to get him to Harry so that Harry will kill him. And then he doesn't care about Spider-Man. But it doesn't make any sense that after this, he keeps MJ.
1: Exactly. Once he's got the trillium, that's it. He no longer needs any of the bits and pieces of his previous overly elaborate plan.
0: At that stage, basically, he needs to go back to his lair with this trillium, stick it in the machine, and then... Just almost absent-mindedly swat the bindings off of MJ and say, "Go away. I'm going to do my thing. I am still a scientist." Basically, you can't kid yourself. I'm still a scientist. I'm doing this for the good of mankind. If you have a girl tied up and screaming behind you, yeah, that's bad. That's mad scientist. Bad scientist. Naughty scientist. Dangerous to know scientist. <laughs> Absolutely. We've completely bypassed the train sequence. It is still eye-popping. There are many, many moments when the CG does not hold up today. It's millennial rubber. And that's really it. It's great to look at. It's not as, like, oh, Jesus Christ, as the one in The Wolverine. And that's surprising. The Wolverine episode coming fairly soon. I will say the train sequence, really pretty good in that The Wolverine Feels like it's actually happening. In this, you, it just jumps between actually an actor and actually Alpha Molina on uh, a set, and then suddenly a computer and cartoon bashing each other around. It whizzes all over the place. It's visually dynamic. It's great to watch, but you know you're watching a cartoon, and you disengage. Or at least I do. It's still a great sequence. The important thing about that sequence is, of course, that Spider-Man Peter gives his all for these people. He stands at the front. This Figurehead, this protector, and just goes, and just gives every possible thing he can, and he pulls this terrible face, like, you know when he's running and he looks like this demonically possessed old man having his nuts crushed to death by the green goblin, and he's going, But the fact that it's Peter giving so much for these people is a wonderful moment. And then you get an even more wonderful moment when, as he topples, they catch him and gently bring him into the train and gently pull him up on their uh, arms and gently move him across. And he sort of drops into the cruciform pose and gently, suddenly, just like Superman, he's also Jesus. And that's fine. Spider-Man died for our sins. And then they give him his mask back. And not one person on there is that guy out of the boats in uh, The Dark Knight. Who's like, fuck it, I'm going straight to the bugle and describing this guy. Uh, because, uh, again, that ruins his whole um, secret identity thing. But it's a touching moment because everybody shows solidarity. They see what he gives on a daily basis for everybody else. That's a wonderful, excellent moment. Cannot fault that. And then Doc Ock comes in and they get in between him and uh, Spider-Man. And it's this is wonderful. you got to get through us moment. And then it's like, look, dude, the film is going to carry on. we got a kidnap girl here. There's an end sequence. It's going to happen whether you guys like it or not. So even though something was about to be proved here, get the fuck out of my way. Grab Spider-Man. Yoink. And then we go to the end sequence. And it's like it's thundering towards this sequence that absolutely has to happen, which is the final showdown. It's like, It's almost like the humanity of the film is almost getting in the way of the comic booky cartoony nature of it and then eventually the humanity has to be shoved aside and then fortunately it gets rescued by the end as as doc Ops stops being such a complete cartoon robot and and goes back to the man he was and it's almost like it's not really peter who's inspiring him peter's passing on what otto said to peter so technically it's the man otto used to be Reinspiring himself to do the right thing.
1: Which is kind of what happens to Peter. He's looking back to the child he was and the idealist that he was and the, all the things that he wanted to do to help people when he first became Spider-Man to re-inspire him to be Spider-Man again. Yeah. Because that's what Henry Jackson is, really. He's little Peter.
0: Mm. But that's actually not what does it, is it? Not really. No. What well, does it? Is MJ? Is
1: MJ okay. being kidnapped and again? And screaming. Yes. And, right, there's a shot in this. It's a teeny tiny thing, but as we all know, it's the teeny <laughs> tiny things that irritate me the most. There's, there's a shot in this where, right, she's collapsed on the floor, screaming, obviously, and an entire wall of the uh dismantled workshop is falling towards her.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And shes it's raining and it's windy and she's all in disarray, as she would be, having been thrown around quite a lot by various eight-legged creatures or representatives of eight-legged creatures. And she's screaming and going, no!
0: Just like in Austin Powers.
1: Indeed. And as this huge wall falls towards her and she holds up her delicate feminine wrist in order to protect herself from this collapsing
0: masonry. Rather than scrabbling out of the way. You don't have to be a superhero, you don't have to be Black Widow, but at least don't just lie there you're like You're
1: physically a... able, you're not paralysed from the neck down, you're capable of getting out of the way of oncoming Like masonry. a little
0: rabbit. And it's only to get Peter into position so that he can hold it off her.
1: Yes. And what she does... And it's a shot that they couldn't just go...
7: I
0: can't believe you're making be such there. a big deal out Sniff of this. Snip it
1: out. She puts her hand down to push her skirt down so that nobody can see her pants.
0: <laughs>
1: now, it may just be <gasps> me.
0: Hang on a second. <gasps>
1: <laughs> if I was in that position, people who may or may not be present seeing my pants would not be my first concern. <laughs> Get out of the way of the fucking falling wall my first concern. <laughs> well, I'll uh, worry about my pants later.
0: In all seriousness, while it's falling towards me, I would I wouldn't even I, I think I'd be able to judge and go, oh, I'm not getting out of the way of that thing. I think I'd be like scanning it really quickly and trying to get into the position where there's the least hard bit, the most brittle bit, possibly an alcove, just oh, something which there is which a huge might...
1: window in the middle of it, and it did occur to me at one point that's just gonna land over her.
0: Yeah. Like a tech slavery thing.
1: up through the window, obviously.
0: But no, it's just done so that Spider-Man can save her. And then he, he brings her into his web. Uh, but this is after Doc Ock's done his his wonderful little I will not die monster thing. And you listen to me. And he takes control of himself. And he, he sheds the robot and be, becomes the man again. And it's a great um, finale for his character. And him drowning there kind of made me go, ah, because you lose one of the best things about Spider-Man 2 then and then you cut to two of the worst things about Spider-Man 2.
1: I d- I can't explain this by the way but I do actually really like that silhouette shot of them both in the web where she's she's kind of there. it's it's almost um King They Ho-
0: replicate it in Spider-Man 3. Do they? Yep, it's in the okay. pot. When <laughs> the black goo lands, just so happens to land right next to Peter.
1: Ah, right. Okay. Well, it, it that, that shot, to me, is quite reminiscent of the 30s King Kong. I can't quite explain why. Mm. Uh, but her sort of, she's got this very 30s glamour. Pose, and she, it's like she's the fly, and he's never looked more spiderish. I think he's upside down, yeah. and his arms—he's well, crawling along
0: like, there to the web, yeah. and yeah, and it, it looks- would freak out most girls. But she actually seems quite calm about it. Yeah, because that's, this is the time when all the masks are off and all the lies fall away, and this is the time for them both to act like adults. And I seem to remember the what she actually says, and this might be Jack back during the crisis situation. You do love me, even though you said you didn't brilliant yeah it's a nice kind of way of bringing it back down to like a 12 year old girl perspective i don't know what what, what do you want from me folks i can't find this stuff incredibly compelling and i couldn't before it's facile sorry but it is um in all seriousness i'm I'm actually far more interested in how harry develops at this point because then it, it cuts away from their um uh, shipping uh, to uh, the madness of King Harry where he uh, confronts his father's ghost as it were uh, the, the, the shard of his father that's broken off inside his own mind and um, he has I completely understand I think both of us do the uh, idea of uh, creating this facsimile of our own fathers in our heads to berate ourselves with at our own weakest points. And understanding that that's not actually our fathers, that's the versions of our fathers we've created for ourselves in our heads. and
1: You can't see, but I'm nodding wildly right uh-huh.
0: now. <laughs> like, like, and again, Harry is somebody who would desperately, desperately needs therapy, but of course then you don't get the... um uh, the, the obsession and the madness and the goblin. Cause if all of these characters that had, that got the therapy they needed got it, then you wouldn't get superheroes and supervillains.
1: And then who would... would save us when the Chitori turn up?
0: Of course. The Skrulls don't get shrinks, of course. I'd love to see Thanos with a shrink. <laughs> I, I don't know, I've got this obsession with death. <laughs> Harry's obviously tortured and he, he he's at his absolute lowest ebb at this point because this, and he's been bitching at Peter this whole time about, you know, you and your friend Spider-Man, uh, and then he like, he slaps him repeatedly at the, the party. It's almost like he needs to get like some white gloves and slap him and go, I pay, pr- propose a duel, sir. And, and he's been bitching and bitching and bitching about it, and there are just so many times when I just feel like that a stronger Peter would be able to say, right, Harry, come with me, okay, because i got some knowledge I'm going to need to lay down on you about your fucking father. But he doesn't. He goes, can't we just leave that? I thought we were over that. I thought, oh, uh, Harry, I can't possibly tell you this because it would make bad things happen. Peter, as we established, does not understand much about how people work. But again, Peter, Peter's not very good at confrontation. Peter's not very good at facing his fears unless he can punch them.
1: There is, actually, because he his way of dealing with Harry by basically doing nothing and allowing Harry to constantly needle him about this whole situation with Spider-Man and him just sort of standing there with his mouth shut and hoping that Harry forgets about it, because, of course, that's going to happen. And that is exactly how he deals with MJ. He lets her continually needle him about the things that he's not doing and doesn't react and doesn't respond and doesn't rise to what she's trying to get out of him, which appears to be that she knows he's Spider-Man and she wants him to admit it on some level, even if she isn't consciously aware of that herself. There is one point in this film where he does honestly face up to something, and that's when he tells May about mm-hmm. what happened with um, Ben's killer.
0: I've been saving that because, obviously, it's a huge moment for him. It's, it's one of the few moments when he actually behaves like a man, even though he does his face does cre- crease up and he does start getting teary again, look, looking like that child-old person
3: absolutely
0: uh, hybrid. But, yeah, it's, it's a huge moment, and uh, significantly, May doesn't go, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. She's absolutely shocked, and she can't even really face it. She has to go off and deal with it on her own quietly, which feels very grown-up.
1: Yeah, or at least very real, Mm. because obviously grown-ups all deal with things in very different ways. But the fact that she, for the first time ever, has to withdraw and decide on the best way forward, and that almost does seem to be the turning point for her, if you think about it. After that, she does start to respond to things rather than just rug-sweeping everything.
6: Hello?
0: Who's that? Son.
5: I'm here. Dad? I thought you were. No. I'm alive in you, Harry.
6: He lives in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He lives
5: in me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's your turn. You swore to make Spider-Man pay. Now make him pay. Pete's my best friend. And I'm your father. You're weak. You are always weak. You'll
3: always be weak until you take control. Now you know the truth about Peter. Be strong, Harry. Avenge me. Avenge me!
0: No! I mean, really what we're witnessing when Harry finds the Goblin Cave, which is what it is, uh, behind the mirror... Um, by the way, was that there all along? Because it looks like it was like a secret room behind the mirror all the time. It, it wasn't just... Some, like, Norman didn't just knock his wall in and like, why well, i got to put my Goblin stuff somewhere.
1: It is an old house. It's possible that it's got, you know walled-up attic alcoves and things like that.
0: It's a nice metaphor for skeletons in the closet, too. Yes. Yeah.
1: It is. Um...
0: And yeah, he has to, he has to face up to who his father was, thus who he is, and unfortunately because he's not able to step out of his father's shadow, he allows that to inform on his future decisions in a fatalistic way. And I do wonder actually, considering this is the way he takes it, what actually might have happened had Peter genuinely confronted him on who his father really was, and how that went down, the exact confluence of events. Because all Peter really had to say was, okay, your father was the Green Goblin.
7: I won't listen to this. No, 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 Harry, listen to me. Oh, you're not going to go? You're, you're running away? Okay. Thwip, thwip, thwip. Now you're stuck to the wall. Oh, you're shouting at me? Thwip. One more. Let me get you some nose holes here. Now you are going to fucking hear me out. Get this. Pops standing on top of the George Washington Bridge. He's got MJ in one hand, the cable cover the other. That shit was on the news. That was your dad. Then we had this big fight, and he ended up dead. One thing led to another. I didn't kill him on purpose. In fact, I decided against it. He was beating the living shit out of me. He threw a load of bricks on me, and I thought I might die. Then he got to the point where he was basically threatening to rape Mary Jane, our friend, to death. I think at that point, I kind of went a little crazy on him. It didn't work out too well for Norman, but I left him alive, I walked away, I decided that even though I did have the ability to kill him, I could not do that. To another person. The point was that I had respect for the man that Norman Osborne was. And that I truly wanted to believe he could be again. And I had respect for his son. That's why I kept his secret. It wasn't for him though. It was for you. If I'd known you were going to twist it around into this vendetta against Spider-Man. Which nothing but my death could satisfy. I'd have told you then and there. Don't tell Harry. I abided by his wishes because I thought it was best for both of us. But you're clearly going down an extremely dark path and you're becoming entirely ensconced in bitterness and revenge for something that actually didn't happen. So I'm going to lay this on you right now to hell with the consequences because you need to be told this stuff like an adult, not like a child.
0: But of course, that's the tragedy running through the entirety of Spider-Man because Peter treats Harry without responsibility. For the one man he's supposed to have responsibility for. His best friend. And Harry himself takes on far too much responsibility. Which is to follow in the old man's legacy. Which is to do I don't know what. But it certainly involves the destruction of Spider-Man. More on that next week when we cover Spider-Man 3 The Shittening. Which is one of those movies, and I'll say this now, that when you first start watching it, you're like... Maybe I've been too hard on Spider-Man 3 all this time. Spider-Man 1 was really good. Spider-Man 2 was really good. Both of them had their flaws. But on average, they're really decent superhero movies, especially compared with the rest of the fair at the time. And they still hold up today, even though they do exist in this world where they're sort of straddling real and uh, overly stylized to the point where it's actually like a cartoon with some unexpected truths in it as opposed to watching something real with... Stylish, cartoony stuff going on, and then about 25 minutes into Spider Man Three, you're thinking, okay, maybe it wasn't as uh, isn't isn't going to carry on to the uh, level that it's got to now. And by the 45 minute mark, you remember how and why it got as terrible as it did. So we'll look forward to that one then. So it only remains for us to say, I've been Alex Shaw.
1: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And neural, neural handshake, handshake complete. complete.
5: so mesmerizing, so hypnotizing, I am captivated, I
6: can, spins a web of any size, catches thieves just like flies, look out, there comes a Spider-Man, is he strong, listen but he's got radioactive blood, can he swing from a thread, take a look overhead, hey there, there goes a Spider-Man in the chair night at the scene of the crime, like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. Spider-Man Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood, Spider-Man, wealth and fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward. Look out. There goes a Spider-Man, watch out his eyes. scene of a crime like a streak of light he arrives just in time Spider-Man Spider Man From the neighborhood Spider Man Wealth and fame where he's ignored Action is his reward to him life is a great big wherever there's a crime. You'll find the Spider-Man